This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Tonight we revisit a magical period in horror when it was booming throughout the world with a lot of teeny bopper influence for the time thanks to the success of Scream. Here we are at the turn of the century in the year 2000 and we look at a a movie that kind of spun out of that genre but kind of created its own subgenre as well. Um, and was a very 2000 movie, um, much like the Ready to Rumble, which we talked about on a previous bonus episode, uh, it just dripped the year 2000, and, and this movie does as well. It was a simpler time, a, a time before 9-11, a time when you could still smoke on airplanes, and a uh, time before uh, the... You know, a, a lot of different shit happened now. So uh, we, we go back and revisit it when I was a young man, fresh out of high school, and so was Grizz, to a movie called Final Destination. And there's a whole lot to unpack on this one, and I'm excited to do it. Uh, kind of surprised we haven't hit this one yet, 17 seasons into this show. But nevertheless... I am your host, the devil you know, the original motherfucker, and the high priest of the Coven of the Goat, the Rev Dan Wilson, and I am here with my fellow doomed passengers, first Dreamboat Annie. Coffee starts with a C and ends with an E. So does the word choke. So what, we're going to choke to death? And rounding out the cast, the jackal of Carlsberg himself, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Grizzle. And you don't even want to fuck with that Mac Daddy. Ah, Tony Todd. Always love it whenever Tony Todd pops up, because you know he's always going to be delivering some fire-ass lines like that. And uh, this this movie had a lot of good lines. Um... What did you think we were gonna titty fuck her over Europe or some shit? Like, well, that was, that was a, over Greenland. That, that was it. it. Was a great line, um, among many others. Fun times, fun times. I first saw this movie when it first came out. I think this might have been a theatrical adventure you and I went on together, Grizz. But uh, if it wasn't, we probably saw it soon thereafter. Yeah, as I recall, it was you, me, and our buddy Chuck, and I think we saw it at the uh, $2 show. You know, that's a blast from the past. How long has it been since a movie's been two bucks? <laughs> but, yeah, I remember 
distinctly, you know, we got out of the movie and it's like, well, yeah, that was pretty good. And didn't think much of it. And then we were driving back and we were driving through a ton of road construction with flashing lights and all these concrete barriers we had to dodge. So, uh, the movie kind of caught up with us. <laughs> oh yeah. What about you, babe? Um, I believe uh, the first time I saw this, I think I rented it like from like blockbuster or whatever. Um, but I definitely saw this movie like when it came out, but I didn't go to the theater to see it. Um, but I was on the final destination train quite early. Uh, I mean, you know, who wasn't? Yeah, we, we laughed and we joked about this movie when it came out, but I, I think as we'll unpack further in the episode, uh, highly influential, highly effective to a lot of people. And that trend would continue. But before we dig on in to Final Destination and what made it tick, let's have a visit from our musical guest, shall we? Brought to you by our pals over at Horror, Pain, Gore, Death Productions. That's Horror, Pain, Gore, Death.com. Take it away, Grizz. Horror, Pain, Gore, Death. Productions welcome Destabilizer to the roster with the debut album Violence is the Answer. Formed in 2020 in Denmark, Destabilizer performed vicious and uncompromising chaotic thrash metal. With lyrics that provoke and challenge, Violence is the Answer delves into the darkest recesses of the human psyche. With a fast-paced and guitar-driven sound that is a furious storm of intensity, accompanied by blistering solos that ignite the senses. Destabilizer del deliver a relentless sonic assault that pushes the boundaries of aggression. A chilling atmosphere that transports listeners to a darker realm, Violence is the Answer showcases 10 tracks of explosive thrash, complemented by the gory and satanic imagery of renowned artist Mario Lopez, which adds a visually striking dimension to the work for fans of Exodus, Exumer, Creator, Razor, Rigor Mortis, Slayer, Sodom, Tankard, Violence, and Voivod. Here is The Road to Hell. Destabilizer. And they're kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims. Get it back! 
Jeffrey Reddick, and it was originally not even pitched as a feature film. That's the wild thing about this to me, because it could have really gone one way entirely, and it went another. Um, it was originally written as a spec script for the X-Files in order to get a TV agent. Uh, Reddick said he was flying home to Kentucky and read a story about a woman who was on vacation, and her mom called and, her, and said, uh, don't take the flight tomorrow, I have a really bad feeling about it. She switched flights, and the plane that she would have been on crashed. She said, whoa, that's fucking creepy. Not an exact quote. Uh, what, if, what if she was supposed to die on that flight? Uh, building on his idea, Reddick wrote a, script, wrote a script and got an agent, but instead of submitting the script to the X-Files, he acted on the suggestion of a colleague at New Line Cinema, and turned it in as a feature film, and New Line bought the treatment and hired him to write the original draft of the script, which featured death as an unseen force. 
after it was finished, New Line Sim- Cinema submitted the script to the directors and writing partners James Wong and Glenn Morgan. Uh, Wong is a Hong Kong-born American television producer, writer, and film director. He's retired now. Uh, he is best known for co-writing episodes of The X-Files with Glenn Morgan. So they're a partner. They're a, a duo. Uh, Morgan and Wong are founders of The Hard Eight Pictures and co-created Space Above and Beyond. And uh, he also directed The One and Dragon Ball Evolution. Wong was quoted as saying one thing they were in agreement in from the start is that they didn't want it to be a slasher movie. Though it kind of is a slasher movie, just where like death itself is the slasher, but that's a whole other rant. Um, it says they became excited when they decided to make the world at large in the service of death our antagonists. So everyday objects and occurrences could then take on ominous proportions and it becomes less about whether or not the character is going to die. And about how they will die and how they can re- how they can delay their death. Uh, their entertainment value is in the ride and not necessarily in the outcome. And by placing the premise of the film on the inevitability of death, we play a certain philosophical note. Uh, Morgan was quoted as saying the main thing about they wanted about death coming to get people is that you never saw this Michael Myers type figure. You never saw a killer. They liked that idea. They said, go ahead and write it. And so once they had a basic story, he said they started cataloging the strange coincidences in his own life. For example, he was in the Vancouver airport waiting for a flight when John Denver came on the loudspeaker. And he remembered saying to himself, hey, he just died in a plane crash. That's a little weird. And so he wrote that exact version of that experience into the script. Producers Craig Perry and Warren Zide also helped with the film's budget because both were similarly fascinated about the idea of this invisible force executing its victims. Perry was a huge fan of the X-Files and claimed that he responded to Wong and Morgan's work for one specific reason, dread. New Line Cinema accepted financing and distribution rights for the film after Reddit came to them personally. And so we are off to the races with Final Destination. And they bring on for special effects. Uh, John Willett was the production designer, and he developed the concept of the skewing sets. Um, they wanted to create an intriguing visual signature for the film. He said what he tried to do with the sets themselves, with their design and their various color choices, was to make things a little unnatural. Not anything that calls attention to itself, but it creates a sense of uneasiness, which would be kind of like a dream, I guess. Uh, but the unsettling feeling that something's not quite right. To achieve this mystique, Willett designed two versions of virtually every set. One version was used before the crash, and the other sets were used for scenes after the jet explodes. On the skewed set, he, he said he forced the perspective either vertically or horizontally. Uh, says nothing is square, and although you can't put your finger on it, it just makes it feel like something isn't right. Skewing was also part of the overall design for the color palette used in the set decoration and the costume design. In the real world, he says, the colors are bright and bright and rich, but in the skewed world, they're washed out and faded, and nothing is obvious. It's only in the overall effect that these subtle differences work their magic. That's pretty fucking cool. I agree. Uh, I think they definitely achieved that goal. I wouldn't have known that unless you just told me, but you can think back on it. It's well, you know, skewed is the good word is a good word for it. So hats off. Yeah, like Chris said, it's not something. And like they were saying that they were the, their goal was it's not really something when you're watching it that you're like, "Huh, this is different." 
Um, but and a little bit like you said, like like a little bit dream like, but going back and thinking about what the movie looks like and like the colors are off, like you said, you know, like everybody looks like pallid and almost sickly. Um, until which we noted, we did note while we were watching that the time jump when they meet back up later towards the end of the movie and then everybody looks healthy again. Um, so yeah, that's that they definitely achieved what they were going for, and that's very impressive. Each Final Destination movie kind of has a scene that sticks with you, and it starts with the very first one in this movie. Um, the airplane scene, a very horrifying sequence because it just brings to life so many of the fears everyone has by getting on a plane. And um, that scene was actually shot inside a very large soundstage. They used a three-ton hydraulic gimbal, and it was operated automatically. He said they spent two months building that set piece, and it weighed about 45,000 pounds and held 89 people. And that was the uh, special effects supervisor, Terry Sunderhoff, who was in charge of that. It could be shifted uh, from side to side, 45 degrees and 60 degrees front to back, realistically conveying the horror of airborne engine failure. Sawa said the screams of the cast inside the gimbal made it appear more real. Wong said you walk into the studio and there's this huge gimbal with a plane on top and you think, what have I done? I was afraid we were going to have 40 extras vomiting. I'm going to say that's quite impressive because I think most of us would think it was just old school Star Trek where you just tilt the camera and old Captain James T is just running around. Right. No, yeah, they, they actually recreated it entirely. I feel like that was a little bit of a trend, though, around that period was having these moving sets, though. And this is just like on the biggest scale because that describing that set piece made me... Um, where the year 2000 was like big year for me that time period and like NSYNC had music videos featuring similar effects and like it was all over music videos with like rotating rooms and stuff like that so I wonder if maybe this came first and that's where like they like but yeah that's very 2000s thing even to have this moving set I feel like well, it was also the era right before they started just fucking using CGI for goddamn everything. And so they actually would have the artistic integrity. The early, like, I think the, looking back, the late 90s and early aughts were very underappreciated time in movies because it was kind of the last of the like using real shit to make movies era um after that like when it became easier to just oh well we can just digitize them in a chair on a green screen and move it whatever direction we want and we can digitize their hair and their facial expressions so that they don't actually have to get thrown around like i, I mean whatever make your movie how you're gonna make it but i i think it loses a little something um there's a much more real and visceral response to shit like this not to get off on a tangent about cgi like they use as a matter of fact most of the final destination franchise got more known as a franchise that relied heavily on cgi but uh, that's kind of a mythbuster thing here in this first movie like they're using practical effects out the ass and then of course the train oh well i just want to say they, they did not blow up 
the uh, the the moving set for the plane. They did use a small miniature model to blow up when the plane exploded. And then the train scene, another iconic scene from the movie, was said to be one of the most difficult to shoot. The car was a replica of the original car that was used for the crash, but it was severed in half prior to filming. And according to Sunderhoff, in order to ensure the safety of the actors, they had to make sure there was no real sheet metal in the car. Um, for the death scenes, the crew used several life casts of the actors and chocolate syrup for fake blood, creating the Rube Goldberg effect for Miss Luton's death was the most difficult to plan, according to the crew. Perry said that it was very hard to generate an atmosphere of dread and to create suspense out of scenes that are common. With the effects, big shining star in this movie, because uh, with no actual killer, they kind of are the star front and center. And then uh, the the music in this, also great score. Um, there was no official album that accompanied the motion picture. However, there were six songs featured in the film. The most prominent, of course, is Rocky Mountain High, which John Denver becomes a fucking harbinger of doom uh, based on this movie, which is in pop culture and future Final Destination movies, which is kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> I always fucking, that tickled the shit out of me about this movie. Um, and then it was very amusing the that they carried that little joke forward. Yeah. And of course, it's like Rocky Mountain High comes on. That means some bad shit's about to happen in this movie and future movies and now in real life. <laughs> but um, also you hear a French version of Rocky Mountain High, so you, you get it in multiple languages. Other songs featured in the film are Hundred Grand by Pete Atherton during the Flight 180 memorial scene, which I just gotta say, I I was brought back to a memory that made me laugh inappropriately. Um the the Flight 180 memorial scene when they unveil the memorial and it's a giant bird. I recall I forgot about it and recall back to the theater and i believe i had this thought when i first saw the fucking movie was like for half a second i really thought when they pulled that sheet off it was gonna be a plane and i was like what the fuck (laughs) but it was a bird (laughs) that would have been wildly fucked up (laughs) i don't know i think a bird is kind of fucked up too because it's like this bird can fly but your plane didn't i mean it's fair i mean yeah also it's less that. on the nose, but it's still it's but there. more on the wing. <laughs> and then uh, there's a Nine Inch Nails song in there called Into the Void, not to be confused with the Black Sabbath song or the Kiss song, which is not the same as the Black Sabbath song. Um, and then All the Candies in the World by Jane Siberry, and as well as And When I Die, performed by Joe 90 during the end credits. Uh, the original motion picture score was performed by Shirley Walker. That is the music. Uh, that did get a, an official release, hilariously enough. Uh, we, you know, we did not get like a soundtrack with the songs on it, but the score got an official CD release in March of 2000 on Windigo Records. All right, let's talk about the cast. We had Devin Sawa as Alex Browning. 
They said of him, uh, one of the most important things we were looking for in casting was the actor's ability to play the subtleties, the little things that a character doesn't say or do that create the edge, the things that get under your skin and spook you. Uh, Morgan said Alex Browning, the last role cast, went to young Canadian actor Devin Sawa, who previously starred in the 1999 film Idle Hands. Uh, he was also in the Casper film with Christina Ricci. Uh, Sawa said that he was also my little sister's fucking childhood crush. So there was posters of this motherfucker all over my house as a kid. Uh, he said that when he read the script on a plane... He found himself peeking out the window at the engine every couple of minutes. And then he went down. He, I, how fucked up would it be to read the script for this for the first time on a plane? That's pretty funny. Underrated. Then he went down and met Glenn and Jim, and he thought they were amazing and already had some great ideas. However, Morgan and Wong were undecided about casting him for the part, so they requested him to perform again as they reviewed his previous works. They were astounded by his work in Idle Hands, and he was hired. Of the script he said there's not a lot of good stuff for my age you get a lot of scripts and they're all uh teen ensembles and they're just crap and then i got flight 180 which is what the script was originally called and it's just awesome he described his role as uh, in the beginning alex is kind of loopy and cotter and you know probably not the most popular guy in school he may have been a dork uh but uh, he, he uh, had their own thing going on. They're after two beautiful girls. There's no chance of that happening. He says, I guess after the plane goes down, his world completely changes. Uh, Devin has an everyman quality that makes him accessible. Wong said he doesn't appear as if he's supremely self-assured. He's more of a regular kid who can take on the complexities of the role and become a hero. Perry was amazed by his vulnerability in acting, describing him as a very distinctive actor, very loose and kind of a cut up when he's not on camera. But the moment the camera's on, I'd never seen anybody to completely slide right through the moment like Devin Sawa. And uh, while he kind of started as a teeny bopper heartthrob, Sawa's continued a hell of a career. He's still very active, uh, currently still knocking out a ton of shit. Uh, what was the end most recently here? I was just going to pop over. And take a look. He was in uh, the Fanatic, the Fred Durst movie. Uh, he was in Black Friday recently. He was in Hunter Hunter, Death Rider in the House of Vampires, uh, The Exorcism of Molly Hartley, uh, Slacker. Oh, yeah, this, this guy's been working pretty steady since then and on a lot of TV. Uh, he was recently on the rebooted Magnum P.I. And, of course, he's right now horror fans, very familiar with him as... Uh, one of the leads on Chucky, and he he pops up all the fuck over that show. So, uh, yeah, De Devin Sawa in a big breakout performance here for him, even though he was already pretty well known. He's also a pretty good Twitter follow. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was very Devin Sawa in this movie. Um, but my if I have one complaint about his acting in this movie, it's that for 98% of this film, his mouth is open. Um, just no matter what he's doing, he, his mouth is just open and he's very sweaty, which I understand the sweaty. He's anxious. Uh, but yeah, he was great. But his mouth was very distracting. The only time it was closed is when he did he ate something and like chewed it really fucking weird. Yeah, you stole my complaint. Yeah, he was definitely a mouth breather. But I guess, the, you know, they're using the uh, the mouth breathing and heavy breathing to promote that sense of impending dread but yeah i guess you know it's a good performance for what it is it's 
I'm kind of mixed, and maybe we'll talk about it more in Final Thoughts. It is a teen horror film, so of course they've got like popular teen actors. So maybe, you know, in my mind, that's why for so long maybe I dismissed it. But, you know, for what they're given and for what the movie is, I think, yeah, he and the rest of the cast did do a, a fairly good job with it. And then we had Allie Larder as our female lead, Clear Rivers. Allie Larder was like one of the it girls of the late 90s and early aughts. Uh, definitely big, big fan. Uh, she, she started Varsity Blues. How could we ever forget the whipped cream bikini? Um, and of course, coming right out of that into this. And this movie kind of launches her as a scream queen in a lot of ways. Um, she says that the film shows how easy it is to turn on someone, to blame someone when you're scared. It's also about trusting your intuitions and yourself. She defined her part as the girl who has a lot of loss in her life and has fallen for herself and has made a life within that. She's an artist. She lives by herself. She's kind of holding on to her grip for what the world has given her. And uh, it's like, you know, kind of does have a lot of those like more tough final girl qualities. Like, yes, she's pretty, but she can, you know, she, she can endure some shit and she's smart and, you know, kind of helps them figure out the plan and all this other shit. Um, like, like Chris said, you know, it is, it's a teen horror movie of the late nineties, early aughts. There is a certain level of kind of cheese that goes with that. But within the context of that, I think she's awesome here. And that's not just my biases being a big fan of hers. And then we had Kerr Smith as Carter Horton. And there was another teeny bopper star. He came off of Dawson's Creek. And uh, he identified the character of Carter as your typical high school bully whose life depends on anger. And mentioned the fact that Carter feared Alex not having control of his own life. Yeah, you know, he was kind of our de facto heel that's not the killer. You always have one of those in a slasher type movie, right? You, there's usually always some guy you kind of want to see get it. And even though he kind of comes around at the end, you, you still kind of want to see him get it. Uh, and spoiler he does so that's what happens to carter and then we had Kristen cloak as the teacher valerie luton uh, she is actually the wife of morgan from the writer director team and uh she said that she has incredible respect for the creators well of course she does <laughs> so joe's the kind of director who knows exactly what he wants as an actor, I can find a way to get there if I know specifically what I'm going for, and Jim gives me that. The fact that he won't move on until he's got exactly what he wants creates a safe environment, which allows me to experiment and try different things. She described her part as strong and sassy and control, and after the crash, she comes unglued probably more than any of the kids, and it's a quick, drastic change. I had to understand the psychology of a person who can turn on a dime like that. She was fine. She was pretty standard that era of movie cool kind of hot teacher like you know older but like like cool enough that the kids think that she's a trustworthy person that's not like just a total narc she met her doom like so many in this film yeah i gotta say that was a fantastic death scene and she uh she executed it pretty well oh yeah also, too, you know, they all come a little bit unhinged, but I think she became the most unhinged, and I think she she pulled that off quite brilliantly throughout the course of the film. 
especially you know, even though she's the cool teacher, she turns right on Devin Sawa's character pretty quick. Yeah, that's true. She definitely does. You fucking freak me out. And then we had Daniel Roebuck as Agent Wine. You might recognize him from pretty much every Rob Zombie movie we've talked about here and several other horror films. He's a a guy you see pop up quite a bit. And we had uh, Roger Gunver Smith, Smith as Agent Shrek, Chad E. Danella as Todd Wagner, and Sean William Scott Stifler himself as Billy Hitchcock. Of course, American Pie was 1999, just a year before that, and all of the studios sent out the edict that you had to hire Stifler at some capacity for your movie. <laughs> and so, here he is. And he can only be varying levels of Stifler. He can be slightly smarter or slightly dumber, but he's Stifler. Yeah, he could be babyface Stifler, he could be heel Stifler, he could be like heel Stifler with a heart of gold. Like there's there's only so much. He can he can be milking the prostate Stifler. <laughs> I mean that's the one everyone knows and loves, but that's that's not necessarily what we get here. Uh, but yeah, Billy Hitchcock, of course, a fucking, there's a lot of references in this movie. We'll get to that in the auditorium. But uh, Scott admired the film, and he said it had a Twilight Zone quality. He laughed at the role, saying it's lacking some social skills. He doesn't have uh, a few, very many friends, and he's kind of like a tag-along. He was surprised when in the script, the character was written as fat, but the writers eventually changed that for Scott. Because the studio said, hey, you got to hire Stifler. It's in, the, it's in the contract. And then we have the legend, Tony Todd, Candyman himself, is William Bloodworth. You want to know about the amazing acting career of Tony Todd? Why don't you take your happy little ass on over to patreon.com slash OG Scare. And for $1 a month, you will unlock the entire archive of Seeking Human Victims. We're talking hundreds of episodes at this point, 17 fucking season dozens of bonus episodes and back on our old slasher season that was one of the earliest ones we did there is a that episode on Candyman, and we go into great detail about the amazing background and shakespearean even career of tony todd and he plays the creepy mortician here uh, but in some analysis of this franchise, I've seen people say that they think the Mortician character is actually the human version of the death character that is killing them all. Um, that he's almost like part of that. And I, I can see that. Yeah, that's a funny angle to think about. And either way, you know, it's a fantastic however many few minutes he gets on screen. But. You know, just delivering what would normally be cheesy lines of, I'll see you soon. But, you know, it's Tony Todd, so it's fantastic. Yeah. That dude could read the fucking phone book, and it would be interesting. Aronson. Aaron. (laughs) And we had Amanda Detmer as Terry Chaney, the girl who gets hit by a bus. You know, they always, you always hear that saying. That was one thing I thought was funny about this movie. You, you hear, oh, what if you walk out in front of a bus tomorrow? And you're like, who the fuck does that? But then 
they used it as a kill in this movie. And it, okay, well, at least the one chick from Final Destination walked out in front of a bus. A kill and a near death. Yeah, at the end, they kind of go back to it. And then we had Brendan Fair as George Wagner, Forbes Angus as Larry Murnau, Lisa Marie Karuk as Krista Marsh, Christine Chatelaine as Blade, Blake Dreyer, Barbara Tyson as Barbara Browning, Robert Wisden as Ken Browning, P. Lynn Johnson as Mrs. Wagner, Larry Gilman as Mr. Wagner, Mark Holden. I like how the, all the fucking universal monster references in these names and one of the actors names is larry gilman fuck uh mark holden as a co-pilot and fred keating as howard siegel rounding out a heck of a cast for final destination let's talk about the shooting dates it shot from may 25th 1999 to august 13th of 1999 Filming took place in New York City and Vancouver, British Columbia, with additional scenes filmed in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and San Francisco, California. The cast members were filming other projects during production, so filming schedules had to be moved around repeatedly for all the cast to appear. Sawa restrained his appearance in The Guilty during production and even commented that he had to share a trailer with Bill Pullman because it was bigger and would make him look more famous. Smith, who was a regular in Dawson's Creek, had to hold episodes for the filming of the movie as well. That's an odd and interesting fact. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. Well, at least they didn't name all the characters after people related to the fucking Halloween franchise, but they absolutely did the Seeking Human Victims favorite, I say that dripping with sarcasm, nod to horror by naming everyone in the movie after some sort of horror reference. We had Billy Hitchcock for Alfred Hitchcock, the Browning family, like Todd Browning, uh, the famous director Larry Murnau in reference to F.W. Murnau, Blake Dreyer uh, to Carl Theodore Dreyer, Valerie Luton to Val Luton, Agent Shrek to Max Shrek, Cherry Ch- Terry Cheney to Lon Cheney, Krista Marsh to Frederick Marsh, uh, Agent Wine of Robert Ween, and George Wagner is directly named after Universal Horror Film producer George Wagner. Uh, not only does the film borrow footage, of the crash of the TWA Flight 800, it borrows other things as well. The July 17th, 1996 flight was carrying a high school French club. It exploded suddenly and was investigated for a possible deliberate act causing the accident. First a bomb, then a surface-to-air missile. As with this film, it was ultimately decided that the crash was a result of a mechanical failure. So, creepy. Kind of based on a true story. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, the scene where Carter elbows Billy in the car was added because on the day of the shooting, Sean William Scott had a sore lip, and to hide it, they added blood, and the end result was Carter elbowing Billy. The numerous appearances of 180, and the film, of course, refer to Flight 180, the original title of the film, 
and the film number they were on, they decided to rename it to Final Destination. So they were afraid, or because they were afraid, people confused it with movies like Air Force One or Con Air. Apparently, Clear's Cabin is the same cabin seen in the movie Lake Placid from 1999. Chinese In Chinese, the title translates to The Death God Comes. I kind of like that better. Yeah, that's pretty metal. The original casting choices for Alex and Clear were Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst prior to the Spider-Man trilogy. And it also features the shortest opening disaster in the film series. The plane crash only lasts around two minutes. Even though the film's plot is said to have been abandoned script for the X-Files, it also borrows a number of elements from 22 from 1961. Uh, and it's also partially inspired by Soul Survivor from 1984. Uh, the movie 22 involves a woman who has a dream that she believes to be real. And later on, she witnesses the things happening in her dream in real life, including a plane exploding on takeoff. The title of the film can be seen on a tag on Alex's luggage. Many of the props in the film contain references to assassinated presidents or almost presidents. Mrs. Luton's coffee cup had an inscription for Mount Abraham High. Carter Horton's car had a license plate beginning with the letters RFK. That's a bit of a stretch. Mention that, you know, it did come out prior to 9-11 and kind of everything changing in the world of air travel. And probably a good thing because given the subject matter, um, had this been scheduled to come out after 9-11, it would have probably got shelved and we would probably never gotten a Final Destination franchise. It was the first teen horror film to not feature a vis visible murderer that you could see, but other horror films have done so since, like the movie Ouija from 2014, Unfriended, also from 2014, and Truth or Dare from 2018, all of which are Jason Blum produced Blumhouse features. William Bloodworth, played by Tony Todd, says, Shh, you'll wake the dead. After Alex and Clear break into the coroner's office. Todd, of course, starred in the remake of Night of the Living Dead from 1990, which, uh, you know, had some zombies in it. So many think that was a reference to that. Speaking of zombie references, there is a Harry Krishna devotee in the airport. The only other horror movie I can recall a Harry Krishna being in is Dawn of the Dead, where there's one that's also been bitten by a zombie and is just wandering around eating people. Apparently, the plane explosion scene was reused in the anime series Monster Muzumi in the 12th episode, Everyday Life with the Monster Girls, with the main character Kimito taking Alex Browning's place in the story. Kerr Smith and Brendan Fair would go along to play uh, alongside one another again in a movie called The Forsaken in 2001 about vampires. And finally, in the scene where Alex is reading the Penthouse magazine on the shelf behind him, you can see a thin FedEx shipping box. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. I think this fact may have gotten slightly cut off. And uh, now it doesn't make any sense as I'm reading it, but it's hilarious. I believe that the fact is that he's got the FedEx box and... Castaway was released the same year, and Tom Hanks was working for FedEx in the movie, and the plane explodes. Oh, gotcha. That was the fact, looks like. No, that, that makes sense. Fair enough. Well, I think that is an omen to move along and see how this sucker did. It's a broad concept. We know it 
had a lot of opinions. So let's see if that translated to box office dollars. Let's look at the numbers. Numbers of the Beast. Final Destination, distributed by New Line Cinema, released on the date March 17th, 2000. Running time of 98 minutes. Budget of 23 million. Pretty good budget for a horror film at that time. Box office, 112.9 million. So I would say that's a pretty resounding success. Yeah, I'd have to consider a smash hit. Final Destination made uh, number three at the U.S. box office on its opening weekend, just behind Aaron Brockovich and Mission to Mars. So, uh, and it kept on earning. So, a very, very successful film for New Line Cinema. Just over $10 million in its opening weekend. Not too shabby. I would also like to point out during this, these numbers talk-ins here, the movie was released on St. Patrick's Day. How is that not? And that should have been in the auditorium. We skipped over that because that's it's supposed to be a lucky day, St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, that's pretty clever, honestly. That was purposeful for sure. What a statement. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the tickets sold for sure on this. Now, what did the critics think? It was a mixed bag. Rotten Tomatoes still only holds it at a 36%. Uh, it's got uh, an average rating of 4.9 out of 10. And this consensus says, despite a panel of X-Files alums at the helm and a promising premise, flighty performances and poor execution keep Final Destination from taking off. On Metacritic, the film has weighed an average score of 36 out of 100, indicating generally unfavorable reviews. Uh, one of their critics said the elaborate suspense action set pieces are more impressive than most, but uh, still wasn't enough to bring that up to a positive score for them. On the on the negative side, Stephen Holden of the New York Times said that even by the crude standards of teenage horror, Final Destination is dramatically flat. The New York Post said the film's premise quickly deteriorates into a silly, badly acted slasher movie minus the slasher. Kevin Maynard of Mr. Showbiz said the film was crude and witless. And the Washington Post wrote that your own final destination just might be the box office to demand your money back. <laughs> the Boston Globe commented that it starts by cheating death and ends by cheating us. The reviews write themselves. <laughs> God damn it. The Chicago Reader described the film as disturbing, if less sophisticated than the best science fiction, science fiction horror TV. The Dallas Observer found it a waste of a decent premise. LA Weekly said the film fails because it takes itself both too seriously and not seriously enough. Uh, Barbara Schulgasser of the Chicago Tribune said that it met the low standards of a mediocre TV movie. The San Francisco Examiner thought it was stupid, silly, and gory. But not all. There were some lovers in a sea of haters. Roger fucking Ebert, of all people, enjoyed the film, giving it three out of four stars, stating that it will no doubt be a hit and inspire obligatory sequels. Like the original Scream, it's too good to be the end of the road. I have visions of my own. 
wild that one of the most notorious horror haters of all time actually loved this movie. The San Francisco Chronicle praised the film, saying that it was playful and energized enough to keep an audience guessing. Variety did the same, saying it generates a respectable amount of suspense and takes a few unexpected turns while covering familiar territory. The L.A. Times said it was a terrific theatrical feature debut for Glenn Morgan and James Wong. Chris Kaltenbach of the Baltimore Sun found the film fitfully thrilling. TV Guide called it serviceable enough if you come into it with sufficiently modest expectations. Marjorie Bumgarten of the Austin Chronicle stated the film was a flawed but often entertaining teen horror film. Despite the film, film's generally mixed reception, critics praised Sawa's performance as Alex. And David Nusser of Real Film Reviews remarked Sawa's personable turn as the hero is matched by a uniformly effective supporting cast with familiar faces. So, yeah, the, the reviews were kind of all over the place. It did win some accolades. Uh, it won the Saturn Award for Best Horror Film in 2000. And Sawa won the Saturn Award for Best Performance by a Young Actor. And Larder won the Young Hollywood Award for Breakthrough Performance by a Female. And uh, there were a whole lot of other awards that this movie got like made a bunch of 100s greatest horror lists best horror films of the 2000s all, all of that type of stuff even recently on some of the shutter like top 100 scariest moments in horror there were a lot of final destination moments on there and so it's left a bit of a legacy it, it certainly spawned a franchise and i think you there's just certain scenarios that you can't go through we'll probably talk more about those in final thoughts but we, without thinking about these fucking movies um they they made an indelible impact on pop culture so um the artistic merits of them can certainly be debated all day long but um they were they were highly influential on society and i don't think we even realized it in some cases until a few years later so if you want to own the movie that started it all, you certainly can, and Annie will tell you how. So it was originally released on VHS and DVD in September of 2000, so just six months later, by New Line Home Video in the United States and Canada. The DVD came with some bonus features, and that includes three audio commentaries, three deleted scenes, and two documentaries. Uh, the first commentary has Wong, Morgan, Reddick, and uh, James Koblentz, uh, and they describe the, min the minute subtleties that are included by the creative team throughout the film, uh, which either allude to death or foreshadowing deaths in the film, um, and just some real like Easter eggs throughout the film that you'll start to pick up on if you watch it a couple of times. Um, they also discuss how the film was made and how they fought executives at New Line over a bunch of different things. Um, the second commentary has some of the actors, uh, Sawa Smith, Cloak, and Donella, and they discuss uh, different scenes and um, how, like how involved those were and how they got cast. Um, and then the third commentary is the isolated music score um so i guess that just turns up the background music more i don't get that but okay um the deleted scenes cover two subplots of alex and clear and they also included an alternate ending 
Um, and then the two documentaries, uh, the first one is a look at test screenings and that was 13 minutes long and it's literally showing people the, watching the screening process. Um, and then the second documentary is called Premonitions and that explores the real life intuitive investigator named Pam Coronado um, who helped police solve a bunch of murders and missing person cases. Um, so it's just a lot of additional content in that original DVD. Um, and actually some of the DVDs contained two non-DVD ROM games. So they included games in some of them as well. Um, in addition to the trailer and filmographies of the cast and crew. So like this was back when they were packing DVDs full of features because they were like, holy crap, we can put more than just movies on here. Um, and then the Blu-ray came out in April of 2009, and that retains the majority of those bonus features. Um, so still around, you can upgrade the collection. Um, and as of right now, it is streaming for free with ads on Tubi. Um, Tubi seems to have a great collection of movies for this spooky season as a heads up. We say it a lot. Tubi is the most underrated streaming service, and it's free. You got to sit through some commercials, but holy fuck, I just went through and loaded up my queue. You would think they were sponsoring us for how often we put them over, but they're not. They can, just throw it out there. But uh, yeah, just to reiterate what Annie said, so much good shit on Tubi. Um, definitely miss those days of those loaded DVDs. In physical media, that's certainly something that the modern connoisseur of horror is probably not too familiar with unless they're into, like, the Scream Factory boutique shit. But anyway, that's all for Final Destination except for our final motherfucking thoughts. I remember, you know, when we first saw this movie back when it came out, I enjoyed it well enough. Like Grizz said, you know, it was fun. Um, I, I think over time, uh, yeah, it's something that I, I kind of grown to appreciate maybe a little more than I did. Cause you can see just that cultural impact and you get on a plane, your worst intrusive thoughts, bring this movie to mind. You talk about the sequel, you're driving behind a fucking truck on the freeway. Intrusive thoughts make you think final destination. These movies had a profound impact on people's psyches you might not be able to remember the plot or the main characters or what happens but you remember the fucking kills and they are spectacular and memorable and um like the practical effects i think were underappreciated even by me at the time, like going back and knowing all of that was practical compared to now i, I have to reiterate how impressed I am with that. Um, just, uh, it, it did something different too with this genre that was kind of already starting to wear itself a little thin just a year after Scream. Um, that, you know, it launched so many the CW horror style movies with all of the popular teen actors and actresses of the day. This kind of takes that genre in a whole different direction as well. And it's one of the only movies from that era besides the Scream franchise that got its own franchise. So, uh, yeah, I think I think we should put some respect 
on the name of Final Destination. Is it the greatest fucking artistic masterpiece of all time? No. But it's not like a schlocky bad B movie either. There's a pretty damn good movie in here. I think what really made this movie so impactful to people, even if, like you said, it isn't necessarily the best movie, um, is that, like, with the premise of, you know, death comes for us all, and when it's your time, it's your time, and there's very little you can do to escape it, um, you know, that's already, you know, something that we all have to face existentially every day. But then it's not just that, it's that the kills, um, a lot of times in horror movies, the kills are absolutely ridiculous to the point where it's like, oh, gross, sick. Whereas this one, it's like, yeah, a lot of it is like that in real life, one in a gajillion chance that it would happen. Um, but it's just real enough. It is possible adjacent that it, it plants the seed in the brain. So while you're watching it, you're you're just watching, um, you know, some people standing by a train and a piece of metal comes and cuts his head off. You know that even if a piece of scrap metal came flying out from underneath the train, it's probably not going to cut your whole head off. But if you're standing near a train track and a train's coming, you're probably going to move a little bit farther away because what if? And then, like with some some of the in the sequels is better examples of that, like the uh, the tanning bed scene is always one that it's like freaks people out uh, to get fried in a tanning bed. But if you've ever actually been in one, you know that they're on timers and you can climb out. But it's just real enough. And that's what I think really fucks with us as people is that we do have to drive behind these logging trucks. Uh, we aren't familiar enough with planes to be able to look and see if we're in a mechanically safe plane or not. Um, we just have to trust that we're going to be safe. Uh, you know, we we do these things that they're doing in the movie that turn disastrous. Um, so I think that's really why it's stuck with everybody, despite it maybe not being the best movie, you could say. Um, and I do think that they get better as the sequels go on. But it's still a pop culture zeitgeist, whatever you want to call it. It's very important to pop culture, this movie. Well, the movie was much as I remember it. I think I don't know that I'd really thought about it much since we had seen it. I do remember that at the time, like I said in the opening, we did enjoy it. You know, it gave us a little chill on our way back home, uh, going across the old dam there that is probably still doing construction to this day, 20 some odd years later. But yeah, I probably put it at the back of my mind. Life goes on. And I remember, you know, thinking about it and. It was a lot like I remember. It's like, oh, this is kind of glossy, like all those early 2000s movies. But then hearing you break it down, it's like, oh, there's an X-Files connection. And it kind of makes you nostalgic for when the X-Files was really good. And, you know, I don't remember, I didn't remember the death scenes being so brutal, especially Todd's. But, you know, they were surprisingly brutal for such a glossy looking film. And knowing that it's pretty, pretty good budget. Um, yeah, hearing all that background and then knowing those, you know, this is part of the last era of practical effects. You know, I, I think that gives me kind of a newfound appreciation for it. And, you know, both of you guys have stated, no, it's not the greatest film. It's not the greatest horror film, but it's a pretty damn good film, you know, and for just over 90 minutes, I think it's time well spent. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that'll make you wince 
And me, I'm a naturally cautious person anyway, but, you know, put you in that same feeling of maybe you check your mirrors a couple of more times or kind of pump the brakes a little sooner. <laughs> so, yeah, I think given that it kind of achieved its goal and I, I think it's a, a fun watch. Excellent. It was a fun episode on a fun movie, and um, hopefully we'll dive into some more Final Destination flicks down the road, because uh, those those are always worth a worth a visit. We'll be back next uh, next week, maybe the next for another bonus episode. We're still in that between season limbo period here, while we're prepping the goodness that'll be season eighteen. We can, we'll have an official announcement coming down the pike in a few days on what that's going to be maybe maybe a week or two we're still we want to make sure it's good we're taking time to curate it don't worry we got a plethora of these bonus episodes still to come to fill your time next time we're back uh, we are going to step into the Tromaverse for another special bonus episode for james our executive producer who uh will be Happy to know not only are we going into the Tromaverse, we're going into the world of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. That's right. Cannibal the Musical will be the next episode of Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims.